Hello guys, today I'm going to read chapter 20 of the Shakespeare Spy, so here I go. Stricken, I sank to the floor next to Judith. Oh, yes, I suppose I has a right to be angry with you, but to send you home. Is there any chance I will change his mind, he was? Judith gave a trembling, bitter laugh. You don't know my father very well. Once he's made up my mind to something, there's no changing it. He never wanted me here to begin with. I'm sure that's not so, I lied. Anyway, surely I won't just pack you off on your own. I will have to find someone to travel with you. Had it not been for so unfinished business with Julia, I would have volunteered my services. She wiped her eyes with the hem of her gown. Yes, I suppose you're right. Perhaps it will be a while then before I can make the arrangements. Aye, it might be weeks, months even. I did my best to sound confident and cheerful, though I felt quite the contrary. It was not enough that I must see to it that Julia got home. Now I had to try to make certain that Judith did not. I suddenly felt quite overwhelmed by it all. If love was difficult to pay upon the stage, it was even harder to manage in earnest. I needed a respite from it. I needed to throw myself into some tasks that would make no demands on my mind or my emotions. Listen, I really must get to work on this play. Oh, well, if you'd rather do than talk to me. It's not that, it's just, I know, I know. I've heard it all before. She rose and straightened her gown. You did promise to read some of it to me, though. Nay, it's not that play. It's Mr. Johnson's. Your father has asked me to copy it out. Well, then, I, of course, you must do it. We must all do as father says, mustn't we? She examined her face in her st- and the small-looking glass Mr. Shakespeare used for his makeup and rubbed at her cheeks with a hand, with a kerchief. You, you needn't feel so sorry for yourself, Widge, for never having had a father. They're a mixed blessing at best. As she went out of the door, she whispered archly, Have fun with your play. Her tone made it clear that she considered it was just a play, not work. Whatever it was, I was grateful to occupy myself with such an undemanding task. According to rumor, one of the priest hunter's favorite methods of extracting a confession was a procedure known as a pine fort et dure in which a slab of stone is placed upon the chest of re-slining victim. The next day, a second slab is added, then a third, and so on until the subject either gives up a desired information or gives up the ghost. Though I had so far been spared the slabs of stone, 
For the past week or so, fortune had been busy laying troubles upon me, one by one, until I felt at times as though I could not breathe. I had no notion, however, that I was expected to confess. All I could do was to try to ignore the growing pressure by turning my mind to other things. I had copied out no more than half a dozen pages of Shachanas before I had interpreted my a breathless, perspiring Sam, fresh from squirming practice. Well, he demanded. I glanced up irritably. Well, what? Did you manage to warn Mr. Garrett in time? Father Garrett, Jarrett, you mean? Yes, yes, did you? Hi. Sam gave a relieved grin. Thank heaven. You might wish to thank me as well. Thanks. He's not leaving London, is he? Not for a while yet, as says, but as not likely to come around here again. No bones. I suppose not. Do you know where he's staying? Nay, and I wouldn't go looking for him an hour you. Priests are dangerous company. Sam scowled at me. Will you stop it? Stop what? Find the older brother. He rose and started from the room. Then he turned back to say, Mr. Garrett's my friend, which I'm not going to forget about him just because he happens to be a papist. That evening, we performed All's Well That Ends Well again. I knew the play backward and forward, and so it was able to lose myself in it as it a dream and give no thought to anything. Julia had never acted in the play, so there was nothing in it to remind me of her, and since Judith did not turn up, I was even able to forget about her for a moment at a time. Ordinarily, I look forward to my time with Mr. Pope at the end of each day, but tonight I felt rather as though I were headed for a session of Bien Forte et Dure, in which all the doubts and worries I had tried to ha- so hard to su- suppress would be unburden myself for someone I dared not make, Mr. Pope, my confessor. We had been instructed not to bring up anything that might upset him. When I reached the library, I found Mr. Pope asleep in his chair. I stole quite silently out again, grateful that I had neither to reveal nor conceal the news that Father Jared had given me concerning Jamie Ritzel. I needed to digest it myself first, to mull over what it might mean to me. Though I now, though I knew now where I came from, did it really change anything? I had no notion whether any of Jamie Redsaw's relations or my mother's were still alive or if they were, where to find them. And even if I did manage to uncover them, how likely was it that they would welcome some long-lost, eliminate, illegitimate kid who claims to be their kin? And even if they did accept me, 
Could I bear to leave London and the world of theater for some other world I knew nothing of? Once again, I was thankful to have something less confusing to turn my mind to, something more within my control. I retreated to my room, lit a candle, and sat down in my desk with Mr. Shakespeare's script. Er, no, my script before me. In a quarter hour or so, I had finished copying into my own hand all that Mr. Shakespeare had written up until the end of the section act. After that, there were no complacent scenes, only scraps of speeches, plus some notes he had made concerning the mechanics of a story. Well, he had given me bare bones, the bare bones. It was up to me to put flesh upon them. I took a deep breath and wrote on a fresh sheet of paper, Act Three. Then I began staring into the space for every uh, for a very long time. I had only now begun to realize that being in control might prove to be more of a, of a curse than a blessing. With perhaps ten thousand possible words at my disposal, how did I settle on just the right one, and then one to follow it? and so on. And yet, that is, was it really so impossible? After all, in real life, we manage to speak to one uh, another well enough without agonizing over every word. That, well, then, perhaps that what I must do was not write the lines, but speak them, say whatever came into my head as folk do in conversation. Sometimes, admittedly, the results were unfortunate, but I had the luxury of taking mine back. Mr. Shakespeare had already established that Timon was in a financial, a financial trouble. What I needed now was a scene in which sends his servant Flamius to ask one of the nobles Lacuous, let's say for a loan. So, scene one, a room in Luxius' house, Flamius waiting. A servant enters and says, says what? Well, I ought to know. I had played a part of a servant often enough. I have told my lord you are here, I said aloud under my breath. He is coming down, hardly inspired, but believable at least, and certainly far better than a blank page. I wrote it down, and Flavius replies, tell him to hurry. No, too cheeky. I'll just sit down here. No, it would require a chair. Thank you. Good enough. Now to bring Lucius on. Servant. Here's my lord. A bit obvious, but never mind. Luxius is a greedy white, so Luxius aside. One of Lord Timon's men bringing me another gift, no doubt. As though I had broken through the barrier of some sort, the words began to flow for me through my pencil and into the paper. Only a trickle at first, but then 
such a steady stream that I was forced to switch from Italian script to my system of swift writing in order to keep up. I felt almost as if someone were dedicating the lines to me. Not Mr. Shakespeare, certainly. He would have di- dictated better ones. Well, no matter that I was not deathless prose, I could always go back later and give it up a bit. I made no attempt at meter. At with most of his plays, Mr. Shakespeare had begun writing this long, unfairly regular iambic penimeter. But by the time the middle of Act Two, he was, for no apparent reason, putting in long pace passages of prose. It is a good enough. It is good enough for him. It was good enough for me. For nearly two years, however, I had been spouting a verse for several hours every day. It was bound to affect me. I found myself unconsciously composing ten-syllable lines with the stress, or even numbered syllables. Has friendship such a faint and milky heart? It turns in less than two nights. Oh, you gods! Sometimes a meter limped a little. But Mr. Shakespeare's lines did not always glide as smoothly as Swan's either. Just when I grew used to the words pouring to the page, without warning, the source, whatever it was, dried up, and I was back to squeezing lines out of my brain, drop by drop. But even at its most frustrating, the task held sort of perverse satisfaction. While everyone else in our household and the other households all over the city were in their beds, here I, I, here was I at my desk, slaving away, creating a work of art. I felt noble, righteous, a matier in service of Melpomene, the muse of tragedy. Like those who slept, I was spinning out a sort of dream. But whereas theirs would fade even before they awoke, mine would be written down and perhaps acted out for others to hear and see again and again. I did not feel nearly so righteous in the morning, and I felt, I felt, in fact less like a noble playwright than like a naughty who has slept half the night in a hard chair with a pile of papers for a pillow and who has wax in his ear from melting a candle. Well, I reminded myself a matier is expected to suffer from his cause, otherwise he would not be a matier only an ordinary white who, do, who, doing an ordinary job that anyone might do as well. As I tried to get my stiff limbs in working order, I consoled myself with the knowledge that I was now nearly one act nearer to having completed, have completed play, and the money to rescue Julia. Sam, 
could not, of course, resist commenting upon my haggard appearance. Don't tell me. The cats of creativity kept you up until all hours again with your infernal mewing. As a matter of fact, I was hard at work writing poesies for the lottery. I had learned from Sam that when you bought a were a chance in the lottery, you gave an agent slip of the paper with some distinctive motto or verse upon it. When the winners were announced, their poesies were read aloud. You're going to enter the lottery? I nodded soberly. Not a royal one, though. This lottery is only for the Chamberlain's men to determine which of us will get his wages this week. Sam gasped at me. Truly? Nay, I was only jesting. He slatted my arm. That's nothing to jest about. As we entered the courtyard of the cross keys, he said, I suppose you won't be favoring us with your company again today? Nay, I'll... uh, It'll be another two days, at least, copying Mr. Johnson's script, or say, or I, I say, discri- disfiguring it. His hand is so poor, the whole thing looks as though it's in some sort of code that only remotely resembles the alphabet. Perhaps it is, Sam whispered dramatically. Perhaps it's a secret. Means of communication only to Catholics. Catholics. When I looked dubious, he said, Well, it's possible. He, uh, they have the whole mysterious language of their own, you know. Aye, it's called Latin. And it's not all, all that mysterious. I peered through the window of the office. There was no one inside. I dug from my purse the key that Mr. Shakespeare had given me. It's mysterious if you've never studied it, Sam said. I have a bit. Have you? Say something in it then. Um, totus mundus agit histromen. Ah, I know that one already. It's on the front of the globe. All the world's a stage. Say something else. I rolled my eyes long sufferly. Cut the end, tempest fugit. What does that mean? It means get to work. I was tempted to tell Sam the news about Jamie Redslaw. But if I told him, it would be the same as telling everyone and... And I was not eager for Judith to know. As though, as my heritage remained a mystery, there was always a possibility, however unlikely, that I was the son of some great lord and not of a common brigand. I found it harder than ever that morning to make sense of Mr. Johnson's scribbles, perhaps because my eyes were closed, so much of the time. It was not only my lack of sleep that was to blame. No matter how well rested I was, Mr. Johnson's script would surely have sent me into a stupor.
How could such colors and colorful white, I wonder, write such an inspired stuff? Such inspired stuff. Considered purely as poetry, there was nothing wrong with it. It was dignified, evocative, and eloquent. But as a dialogue, but as dialogue for the stage, it was, to use Mr. Shakespeare's term again, putrid, hopelessly settled and unnatural. I wondered whether I should introduce Mr. Johnson to my method of speaking lines loud before I wrote them down. Probably not. If I did. He would no doubt speak aloud a few choice lines for himself. They would be not be suitable for use upon the stage, of course, but at least they would have some life in, in them. Though copying the script was a struggle, it did teach me a valuable lesson. I still did not know much about how to write a play. Well, at least I knew a good deal about how not to write one. That night, I sat down on at my own desk with the new determination. For the first time, I actually believed that if I worked hard enough at it, I might write something worth reading and worth acting. If not, it were with this play, when with the next one or the next. Perhaps in process, I might even manage to get, make something for myself, unlike my father. But though Jimmy Redsaw had done little enough for me, there was one thing I might thank him for. Like Mr. Johnson, he had instilled me a fierce resolve not to follow in his footsteps. So that was Chapter Twenty One. Bye, guys. See you later. See you later. See you. See ya. Later. Bye, guys. Bye guys.